you know, that was really one of the best warrior games in my humble opinion, um, because the Navy went to great lengths to engage the community and bring the community in Ch of Chicago around. We were in a venue that people could access and come and spectate. And I, I really thought that was going to bring a lot more money and attention to kind of the power of adaptive sports, not only for disabled veterans, but for people with disabilities in general. Um, I was hoping it would bring more attention to the Paralympics and, you know, get people involved if they had kids that were facing disabilities, just to show the healing power of sports and community. So I was really proud of the Navy for hosting in Chicago. And I know that they got a lot of uh, pushback from the Department of Defense or other branches because there's this idea that it, no one's really right or wrong. Uh, the other branches have traditionally wanted to have it on a military base that's cheaper. It's easier for military families, but it is more closed off from society. And the Navy went in the other direction where they wanted maximum exposure. So, I mean, there were billboards of Team Navy all over, of all of the athletes, all over Chicago. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which is really exciting. All right, you guys hear it all the time. The typical, if you like this episode, please rate us, subscribe to us, leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify, wherever. Well, it really does make a difference for this podcast. We're small, we're trying to get bigger, and all of this feeds the algorithm so that iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, wherever you find us at, will rate us higher and higher with the more likes and comments that you guys leave. And always, if you guys find value in these episodes, please leave us a comment on the episode or on the show uh, page. And the best way to help us is to share it off. So again, thank you. And we will talk to you soon. Today, I get to talk to Laura Root, the shooting coach of Team Navy. We talk about her getting her commission later in life than the average college graduate with a big amount of life experience behind her. She talked about dealing with muscular dystrophy and being a cancer survivor. She won the first female gold medal in shooting during the Warrior Games, which led her to coaching Team Navy. And after she was medically retired, she found a passion for sailing. All right, we're back and I'm here with my friend, Laura Root. Laura is a medically retired Navy Intel officer, right? Yes. But even more so in spirit of the last interview, she was also the shooting coach for Team Navy. Amongst many, many other hats she's worn uh, doing veteran outreach stuff. So Laura, tell us your background. Uh, let's see. I graduated from University of Washington. And it was my lifelong dream to go live in Paris. So that's where I went for graduate school in international relations. And I had always had a mind to join the military and use that kind of uh, international training to use in the military. Um, so I went to Paris, got my master's in international affairs lived in Turkey for about a year and a half so that I had a critical language under my belt and then came home and became a Navy intelligence officer. 
So where did, where did you grow up at? <laughs> we moved around a lot. Uh, my dad is actually a scientist, but before that he was an Air Force brat. Um, so we started off in Maryland, Delaware area. And then I actually did my university and high school out in Seattle. So did you know from a, a young age that the military was the way you were going to go? No, not at all. In fact, I was uh, initially very opposed to the military. Um, but then I realized that I probably needed some discipline and I could, you know, grow into different roles professionally and also use the things that I was interested in to the benefit of my country, which was languages and international affairs. So, so now did you, um, were you athletic in high school? Uh, I was to start off with, but I ended up going to college a year early while I was a high school student. Um, so I had to pretty much drop out of sports and uh, I was focusing on going to college in the morning and then high school in the afternoons, that kind of situation. So what was your sport? Oh my gosh. My, my first love was always equestrian sports, uh, show jumping, dressage. Uh, I was very successful as a volleyball player. Uh, they were always recruiting me for basketball, but I was never any good. <laughs> Well, you, you got one jumping sport in for sure. The, the volleyball side. So talk to me about equestrian sports. How do you get into a, equestrian sports? Um, well, it's kind of expensive, but back in the day when I was training, it wasn't as expensive as it is now. Uh, when I was living in Maryland, I grew up near a racetrack and they, there were trainers there that would take horses that weren't very successful at racing and retrain them for show jumping and dressage. And we were always working with kids from the local area. Um, it was just something that really helped to counteract some of the struggles of growing up. Um, there was a lot of bullying where we lived. Uh, the KKK was very active in that oh, wow. part of Maryland. Yeah, it, it was kind of a nightmare in school. And so the stable became our happy place for a lot of us. So did you, how old were you when you got into it? I was about eight or nine. And I had been completely obsessed with horses. I mean, I didn't want Barbie dolls as a kid. I always wanted horses. <laughs> <laughs> I would have never pictured you as someone who was, into horses as much as you make it sound like that you were all horse <laughs> obsessed drawing pictures of horses writing stories about them and you know they had these elaborate lives and they were overcoming you know development issues and climate change issues and <laughs> I mean, it, it was intense <laughs> so um you keep saying this word i've never heard it before what is drusage Oh, dressage is, um, I believe it might be British. I'm not entirely sure, but it's when they teach the horse to drop its neck or drop its head and arch its neck or pick up its feet, do the sidestepping, uh, basically showing off, oh, okay. <laughs> going, okay. crawling around the ring and prancing and 
all that fun stuff. Because <laughs> I've seen the jumping, like the the equestrian events that they have that they have in the Olympics, where those horses are pretty crazy, just going around jumping. Yeah. Didn't realize that the uh, that there was a showmanship aspect to equestrian sports. Sure, sure. And I'm also, you know, Hungarian, which has a long history of involvement with horses. So oh, yeah. we we like to joke that's where it came from. And it um, may well have. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of Navy wounded warriors who are into the equestrian sports. Um, I know one that's actually starting a horse therapy ranch. Another one is competitive in show jumping. Yeah, and, I think I think I know the one you're talking about competitive in show jumping. Yeah. Yeah. And she just made the team again. Yes. Congrats. So that's good for <laughs> her too. Um, but back to your story. So you <laughs> do all this, then you give it up to go to college. So you got your, your graduate degree before you joined the Navy. Yes. Okay. So uh, why Paris? Uh, again, I, you know, growing up where I grew up, it was an escape maybe. And there was so much trouble to get into where I lived in Maryland. I mean, this was the eighties near Wilmington, Delaware, between Philadelphia and Baltimore. It was tough. I mean, that's where places, things like the wire were filmed oh, okay. and it was wow. real. I mean, the, it, there was so much stress on kids growing up. And when I walked into French class, I, a whole new world just opened up and it was a world where I didn't have to worry about the kids who were threatening to kill me in fifth grade because oh, wow. I wasn't white enough for them, basically. I mean, it, it was a bad situation. Um, I was really fortunate that my dad changed jobs when I was 15 and we got the heck out of there because, yeah, yeah it was a pretty tough situation. So how much of a change was that for you just climate wise going from East coast winners to West coast winners? Oh gosh. It was, everyone says that it's hard to adjust to the rain, but again, it, it was a much better situation for me. Um, I, I, it was hard at first, just leaving all of the people that I thought were my friends or being in a new environment. But the kids in Seattle were so welcoming. I mean, it was a gigantic school. It was like being set in Beverly Hills for me. Um, Seattle was starting to boom with all of the tech companies out there. And there were so many activities to engage kids in a positive way that I think in three years of high school in the Pacific Northwest, I only saw one fight get physical. That oh, was wow. it. Everyone else. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else just minded their own business. They had the arts or hiking or sports or whatever they were into. Um, nobody bullied each other. They, they just didn't have time for it. We were all living our lives and having a good time. So did you leave the Pacific Northwest after high school to go to college or did you go to college up in the Pacific Northwest? Uh, no, I did my three years. I finished my three years of college at University of Washington. Okay. I stayed there. And that must have been real fun at that time. The, and that, at that time. 
Oh, absolutely. This was before corporations ran Seattle. So the counterculture was strong. The music was great. I mean, it was the scene. So what you're saying is (laughs) there was only one Starbucks on every street corner, not four Starbucks (laughs) on every street corner. Um, Let's see around Westlake center, which is the main shopping mall in downtown Seattle. Uh, I think we counted five or six coffee shops, but only one was a corporate brand, which was Seattle's best at the time. So it was, it was before Starbucks took over the world. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. There, there's been quite a few places with Starbucks that I've been to where I've literally seen them across the street from each other. Yeah. Yeah. Or actually, I think out here in one of the shopping centers I go to where there's a Target, there's one inside the Target, and then there's an actual Starbucks in the parking lot. You remember the strike two scene, right? Where the dragon burns down one Starbucks and everyone screams and runs across the street into the other one. Yeah. Uh, You you had the great times. Old Seattle. (laughs) I really did. We were... We were really lucky, um, like Capitol, I remember Capitol Hill well, and that was kind of the cool artsy district. It was all about um, equality and music and counterculture. And there's a big statue of Jimi Hendrix sitting right there. And I went to community college right there on Capitol Hill. It was awesome. Nice. So did you... Um see much of a military presence i know people always assume because there's uh, everett and why am i drawing a blank on the big carrier base up there oh i can't believe i'm drawing a blank on this but With there's the a big yeah yeah there's a big navy presence up there and i think there's a fairly decent sized air force presence did you get any feeling off any of that at that time when you were never never once um I don't even think we saw, uh, no, that's not true. Uh, the Blue Angels would fly in Seafair over Lake Washington and okay. everyone thought that was pretty cool. So we'd been exposed to the Blue Angels and kind of the air show that would come over the lake. Anytime there's fast moving planes at low altitude, <laughs> I think people tend to get excited. Definitely. <laughs> so um, as you're doing, as you're getting ready to go to graduate school, where did you end up going to graduate school? Uh, It was called American Graduate School of International Relations and Diplomacy in Paris. At the time, it was linked with American University of Paris. Um, But since then, they now get their accreditation through a school in Pennsylvania. Um, But things were kind of changing back then when I went to school. That was like 2002. Um, And I believe there now permanently located in the six arrondissement. Um, you just said words that make no sense at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's a neighborhood in Paris. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, so it sounds like prior to when you left for Paris, 9-11 had happened. Yes. I was actually in New York during 9-11. The Um, city or the state at that point? The city. I was about to take the train down through the World Trade Center to go meet a friend uh, in Brooklyn. So I was just crossing the ferry from New Jersey into New York to get on that train. Um, 
you know, it was some of my best friends from high school were visiting from Germany and she was stuck on the rooftop during the attack, you know, catching pieces of paper that were flying off of the towers. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we were right there. Um, it took me about two or three days to get her out of Brooklyn. Um, and my dad being a scientist, you know, we were told to get as far away from the city and go west as possible because the air was no good and to just stay out of harm's way until they could kind of, you know, work on the recovery a little how, bit. How much of it did you see? Um, I just saw the smoke. Uh, the way the terrain was is the hills were blocking any view of the city. So all I could see was the smoke. And then what I saw on television, it just chilled me to the bone. Um, and I, I kind of knew right then and there that I had to join the military. It was already in my mind before 9-11, but that cemented it. So it wasn't a question of if, it was only a question of when. So when did, when was the seed planted then? Going from someone who had wanted nothing to do with the military to <laughs> maybe. Um, I think after college, you know, I, you get a degree. I invested so much time and energy from a young age getting that college degree in political science. And I kind of was looking around like, I want to use this. I want to do something and make my country better. Um, and it was hard because if you weren't in computer programming, then there weren't a lot of jobs for you in Seattle. So that kind of had me hopscotching back to the East Coast. And um, I was back East for a while, helping my aunt out because my uncle was dying of cancer after sailing around the world. And he was in the Navy. My dad was in the Navy. Uh, grandfathers were in the Navy. And, you know, even great aunts, tons of cousins. It, I think I'm like the 12th or 13th person in my family to end up going into the military. <laughs> Wow. Okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So it, it was the desire to do that, I guess, was already there. Uh, the doubts in my mind were really, do I have enough discipline to get through this? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. So, <laughs> but you still, after 9-11, you still kind of put it on the back burner to go over to Paris to go get your master's. That was my mother and sister begged me not to sign up and go directly to Iraq. I was, they were calling me every day. <laughs> I, I was thinking in my head that you, you do realize you have the GI Bill. They would have paid for that. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And that's actually, true. The, the thing that no one talks about really uh, is tuition assistance. Yeah. And I mean, at the time, it was much cheaper to do a graduate degree in France. Um, there was a lot of support from the French government and healthcare and transportation reimbursement. So it, it was already a good deal. It wasn't yeah. like going to school in the US. So you get over to France, obviously, like you said, you, like, you love languages and you have a passion for France at this point in time. Yes. 
How was it being the new American girl? Um, well, there were a lot of Americans in the program, <laughs> but because we were all, you know, doing, working on an advanced degree that we cared about, it was like meeting a family that I never knew I could have, uh, instantaneously we all kind of bonded and it was a small school and I just thrived. Uh, it was hard at first to kind of get around the city and do normal things like grocery shopping or figure out a place to live. Um, but, you know, we figured it out. And the, the worst part, I think, was that all of my French classes in high school and college had been very Americanized. Um. So when I went, I could read, I could write, I could understand certain things, but if I tried to speak or if people spoke to me, I didn't have the accent down at all. <laughs> and, and I'm assuming it's a lot like a Spanish classes here where it's very formalized Spanish. But if yes. you go down to Mexico, it's slang Spanish. Yes, definitely. So I went to the Loire Valley in France. Uh, it's about an hour and a half to the uh, southwest of the city. And it's like somebody hit the button on the remote and I could just understand them perfectly because it was textbook French that they were speaking. <laughs> oh, perfect. So when you were over there, um, you, it's what, a two-year degree? Yes. So at what point in time did you know when you were going to come back that you were ready to say yes? <laughs> Initially, I tried not to. <laughs> come back or say yes uh both <laughs> um yeah I stayed in Paris for as long as I could the only reason that I left was because uh Sarkozy was coming to power and he was not very friendly about foreigners staying in the country uh I was looking at doing a PhD in France uh but I just I ran out of money and I didn't have the energy to try and do the dissertation in a foreign language. Mm. Um, so my French was getting better and it was working, but it wasn't quite at that academic professional level that I needed. So I started considering again, what do I want to do to work in international affairs uh, for on the American side? So I decided that I needed to learn uh, a critical language and I was trying to decide between Arabic or Turkish. And I felt that we needed a lot more help with relationships with Turkic speaking countries uh, throughout from Turkey all the way to China. So most of Central Asia. And I took a gamble and moved to Istanbul. So I was just an English teacher or whatever I could teach in English while I was learning Turkish well enough to have that on my resume when I came home. So I recently heard a podcast uh, with a, oh God, I'm going to, I'm not going to try to say the word, a guy who speaks like 16 languages. And he was very adamant that uh, the traditional way of learning a language is not the best way to communicate the language. Immersive learning is probably the best. Absolutely. So did you find uh, learning Turkish was easier than you having that French knowledge and then 
realizing that everything you were taught was a textbook, not real conversational French? I, it depends. So the, the French were very adamant about correcting foreigners who were trying to speak their language. Um, keep in mind that they were once a large empire and diplomatic presence. So they're used to people speaking French. Um, they were very helpful in making sure that you advanced your working knowledge of the language just by correcting you in normal conversation. Um, Turkey, people were much friendlier and on that, on that level, but they wanted to speak English more. Um, I would have to really encourage my friends to correct my Turkish because they didn't want to be rude. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, but overall, it, it was, for a language like Turkish, it was surprisingly easy. Um, and I remember having a lot of conversations with the people that I'd met there. Like I understood the words that they were saying in a sentence, but I didn't understand the meaning of the sentence. And well, one of them told me, well, we like it that way because everything around here is, you know, inshallah, <laughs> it's <laughs> God willing. And we don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow in terms of the government or this or that. So <laughs> Okay. Everything's kind of open-ended. <laughs> yeah. So um, I probably should know this. Turkish, is it a uh, Latin alphabet or is it uh, more like Arabic? Uh, it is now a Latin alphabet. Uh, Ataturk, who was their leader after World War I, changed them to the same alphabet. Um, it just has accents like German would over certain letters. Oh, okay. Okay. I was just curious because as you're learning it, I know um, as we get into your military side, when it comes to languages, there's a proficiency test for reading, writing, and speaking. Yes. So I was going to be curious on how hard it was to learn the writing, but since it's obviously uh, Latin based in terms of the characters, a lot easier than say Chinese russian or arabic which i've been to the republic of georgia and they're like meet us on this street and you look up and you're like i yeah sure whatever that <laughs> chicken scratch is i have no idea so like not even having a context of the alphabet make, makes it a lot harder definitely um i visited egypt when i was living in France. And I remember it took about two solid weeks to really get the alphabet down and be able to read. But even then, because they don't, I, they don't put vowels in their writing or something like that. It, it was much harder for me to learn. Turkish oh, yeah. was so much easier. It's gender neutral. Uh, they have something called vowel harmony. So vowels have to go together. So if you start with one vowel, you intuitively know which one is next. Um, and there, there's kind of a, a flow to the language that is really easy to pick up or just, it sounds nice. <laughs> so what ended up bringing you home? Uh, Turkey was getting a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, this was, by this point, it was 2006 and Tayyip Erdogan was becoming increasingly powerful. Um, I had made a very 
conscious effort to stick to Turkish people as much as possible. Um, and I remember coming home one day and my roommate was crying because the laws had changed in Istanbul and she had had her fiance in our apartment and the neighbor came over and complained and said that if he saw us bringing a man into our flat again, that he was going to call the police and have us arrested on prostitution charges. And so we, we started talking to people that we knew and we're like, is this even possible? And they said, yes. So wow. just things like that where you weren't really free. Um, YouTube, the internet, all of it was being shut down constantly because a Greek person posted a video that they thought was derogatory towards Turks. It, it was just going on and on. Um, so it was getting, the pressure was building to what we saw at Gezi Park and kind of the takeover with Erdogan. Yeah, I remember. I remember the, for lack of a better way of putting it, the television coup that they tried to do back. What was that like in fourteen or fifteen? Yeah, and um, he's and I, also pushed everyone out of the military. That was kind of the last bastion of Turkish democracy, um, and installed his own people in there. So, so I guess that's why. This sounds horrible to say it like this, but I guess that's one benefit of either an EU, a British, or an American passport is you can say goodbye. Yes. So you came home and you kind of sound like you have a little bit of a big heart and activism streak in you. Where did the military finally come in on that? Oh not sure uh when i it was just always in the back of my mind that it was something i needed to do um by that point i was gaining confidence that i had something to offer to the military at that point i had different perspectives i knew how to get along with different people from around the world and i thought that that would help save some of the people who are already in the military or make their lives easier, not necessarily save them, but definitely on deployments or trying to work things out with other countries. I thought that I could be of assistance of making life easier for them. <laughs> so before joining the military, did you ever think about state department work or any of those type of agencies? Yes. Um, they had a very long test about current affairs and geography and all of these things, which was fine. Um, but then the last part of the test was really kind of a personality test uh, to see what you would do in different scenarios. And I believe that the test was made to weed out the people that might think too much on their, not think too much on their own, but you know, go against the overall mission of the State Department in the U.S. government um, or have any problems with how they do business around the world. So as far as I know, you know, from my graduate program in international affairs and diplomacy, 
we all, there are only one or two people that pass that test. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody else lies. Yeah. Or we weren't willing to put the U S government's desires above everyone else's. That makes sense. So you, um, you finally say, okay, I need to go talk to someone about the Navy specifically. Did you ever consider any of the other branches? Uh, I had been considering Air Force, um, but they, I didn't understand what it was at the time and it was very uh, focused on pilots. So I thought that the Navy would just have a wider range of uh, missions and intelligence activities. And I also found that it was a little bit more diverse in terms of community. Um, at this point, when I, when I went to the Navy recruiter, there was a lot of bad press about the Air Force and anti-Semitism, really? particularly in Colorado. Yeah. I did. I would have never thought Air Force and anti-Semitism would be in the same words. I mean, I make fun of them all the time, but that's a pretty <laughs> harsh thing for them to be embroiled with, to say the least. It's something about handing out pamphlets at the academy after the passion of Christ movie or something, something to that effect. Um, but yeah, I, lo I looked around at the culture and it just, I couldn't see it happening for me. <laughs> well, I, again, I don't mean to bat. Well, okay. Let's face it. I mean to bash the air force. Their culture is no culture in a lot of ways. They don't have a deep, rich culture. Like the three services that have been around forever. And it's not their fault. Yeah. It, they just haven't no. been around long enough to develop it. Much like the Space Force. Um, <laughs> let's pretend. Well, and, and working in DC, I got to see what Air Force culture really was. And there were a lot of good opportunities in intelligence specifically that I would have been interested in. Uh, I just didn't know at the time. The Navy yeah. seemed to have it all. and. They did it with some chutzpah, as we would say. <laughs> so let, let's talk about that. You finally pull the trigger and you go talk to the officer recruiter, which I'm assuming was probably either a junior uh, lieutenant or maybe a chief that you ended up talking to. He was a chief. Yes. Um, what was the cell? Because um, you're, you're, you're older than the average fresh out of college uh, sure. person who wants her commission. So what was the sell to you? You just got you international. You just got back with your master's degree from France. You were a teacher in Turkey. How did they sell you? Um, I'm not really sure because the initial recruiter didn't respond. And then when I did meet with somebody, they were trying to get me to go out on a date with them. So <laughs> maybe that was the cell and I don't know it. <laughs> How do I get as far away from this crazy recruiter as possible? Join the Navy and see the world. In the DC area, I did find a chief recruiter who was, uh, actually really pushing me to become surface warfare. And finally I wisened up and I was just like, you know, I've got all this on paper and I, 
I am a little older. I was 27 or 28. I'm like, I know who I am. Um, you don't really want me driving a ship. Uh, I could learn it, but that's not where I'm going to shine. I need to be an intel officer. And so he kept telling me less than 1% of those packages are accepted. Are you sure? What's your backup? And I just told him, if you don't want me as an intel officer, number one, I don't know who you're recruiting because it's not like Harvard and Yale grads are applying for the military. <laughs> and even then they don't speak Turkish very often. <laughs> um, and if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to the Air Force. And that seemed to cement it for him. He was completely on my case. Um, I had some friends in the DC area that were working in intelligence issues. Uh, they had, or security, they had their own company and they basically knew everybody in the DC three-letter agencies. And so we had sent my resume to a Lieutenant commander and a captain uh, right off the bat to see if the Navy might be interested or if I could be of use to the Navy. And they said yes, and they were really encouraging me to apply. Um, and yeah, I don't know how far I would have gotten without those friends. Uh, they did everything for me. Um, they didn't get me in, they didn't get me through OCS but they at least got me connected with the right people that could help me submit the application and take the ASVAB and all that good stuff. So at this point in time, how are you physically in terms of fitness in that? Because oh, I think a gosh. lot of people forget about that part for officers. Um, like right now or? No, 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 back then when you were joining. Oh, back then. Um, back then I was very physically fit. I didn't own a car. I was walking or cycling to work. Every morning I would go running up and down the National Mall. Uh, I was trying to do the PT exercises on my own just to get ready for OCS. And it was about a year and a couple months before I was accepted until I deployed for OCS. Um, so I had a lot of preparation time and I was very diligent about that. I was doing yoga. Um, always pushing myself, but lo and behold, it was never quite enough for OCS. <laughs> um, OCS is much like boot camp in the fact that there's a certain point in time, whether it's day one to day 30 or day one to day 10, where no matter what they tell you to do, there is no right. Oh yeah. There, there's no right. Um, you could fold your socks and your uniforms exactly right but it's still not right but it was still actually hysterically funny at the same time <laughs> yeah definitely so um so you finally ship out what was the last few days like before you left talking to parents and friends and family because i mean you've been pretty established you're not just straight out of college you're someone who's been established yeah, I, I was working in an environmental think tank, which was a great job. And that, that was hard to leave them. It was a, an institute that I'd used a lot for my thesis research. And I was really proud to be in that community, but it just wasn't going anywhere. And 
I felt like I had to go through OCS to shine um, and really, again, use all of the things that I had been building for the past several years. So it was kind of bittersweet. Um, a lot of friends were really supportive and they could see why I would want to go join the military. Um, others were really shocked and surprised because I was really into yoga and kind of a pacifist. <laughs> um, also a big environmentalist, but I just kept telling them, you know, if, if somebody is going to make anything better, wouldn't you want it to be me? Or I, I at least have to try. I don't necessarily think that I could change an institution as big as the Navy, but I could, again, I can make things better for the people that I work with. That makes sense. So how did your parents feel? I mean, now you're a volunteer getting commissioned in the middle of a war that has no obvious end. Yeah. My, my dad was really proud and came to my commissioning um, practically with tears in his eyes and jumping out of his seat every time they asked the audience a question. <laughs> okay. my, my, mom, my mom, not so much. She was really uh, hesitant and apprehensive and didn't really want to be there. It was intimidating for her, I think. <laughs> So you go, you're now on your way to Rhode Island, I'm, I'm guessing. I went to Rhode Island. I drove up with another uh, candidate that was in my class and we, you know, stayed in some motel the night before we had to check in and she was on her phone the whole time with her boyfriend. And I was just kind of looking at things. I made all my phone calls, tell every, told everybody I'll talk to him in a few months and and that was it. And so I yeah. forgot you guys actually <laughs> drive to OCS. Yes. So as you're pulling up to the gates, um, what's going through your head? Well, At any point in time, was it, I could put this in reverse? <laughs> a, a lot of that was in the conversation going up there. We were like, what are we doing? <laughs> are we sure? <laughs> <laughs> but luckily we had each other to kind of talk ourselves back off the cliff. We're like, no, this is going to be good. You know, we, and I was with another female. We're like, this is kind of amazing. You know, it wasn't so long ago that women didn't have these opportunities in the past. And so we were really proud to be able to go and wear the uniform form and become leaders, especially officers in the military. Um, if I remember correctly, her designator was to, for, um, to become a pilot, I think. Oh, wow. And I don't know if she made it or not. I think she might've, um, because she ended up graduating before me. Um, but yeah, there, there was a different sense of appreciation for the women perhaps than the men. How many, how many women did you have in your class? Seven. How big was your class? Uh, I think 42 ended up graduating. Oh, okay. So 
and so, we dropped down to six. So about a fifth of about a fifth, sixth of the class. Yeah, that's that is actually more than what I would have thought for some weird reason. So you get there, and at some point in time, they put you in a uniform. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I and if I'm remembering right back to the time it was those god forsaken smurf suits the uh NW or yeah NWU type one the blue camouflage yes <laughs> or as I call it the aquaflage um how did that feel now that was a big moment to be able to put that on because remember we are in flight suits that are used. Sorry, I've got to let the dog out of here. <laughs> okay. Um, we were in used dirty, well, no, they were cleaned, but old flight suits for the first couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So to put on your NWUs was a great honor. And then I actually have a picture of the first time I ever wore khakis and I'm kind of standing there like really proud of myself. <laughs> well, much like for the chief community, I know the, the khakis mean a lot. So yeah. Um, physically, how were you through OCS? Um, I don't know. You know, the, I fell out of the first week because I made it through one exercise that was really strenuous. And then I don't know what happened, but it was the Friday or Saturday of the hell week. And someone just, we were doing push-ups, and someone came behind me and I grabbed my chest because they kind of startled me or something. And as soon as they saw me touch my chest, they pulled me out and I ended up in holding class for like six weeks or something. Oh, wow. Um, so we were still exercise doing PT and holding class and doing all the other stuff. And I was trying to get back into the class. We call it class up, but I injured my shoulder or, you know, one thing would happen after another, you know, I was doing something wrong. One person came to RPT me and then another person came to RPT me and I just felt the pop in my neck <laughs> so rpt is remedial physical training right yes <laughs> which it's an oxymoron let's just put it that way it, it's more of a beat down at least that's how it was in boot camp for uh, young sailors who had to be remediated god we yeah. have such we have such kind sounding names for brutal actions it you know it really wasn't that brutal it I, I guess it would be if you're like 21 or 22 and you have no life experience but for me it wasn't that bad yeah, um yeah. they would always they would make fun of me because there was a french-speaking marine who was there as a training officer at ocs and i maybe he saw that i spoke french or something like that but he took a special interest and would just you know, find me wherever I was on the campus and make me do extra <laughs> RPT. So you, you know, I totally forgot to ask you, what time of the year did you go? Uh, October. So, so let me I was do the there math. all winter. 
<laughs> I was going to say, let me do the math. Um, six weeks puts you like mid-December. How, yes. how is Newport, Rhode Island in the middle of the winter? It was ridiculously cold. Um, I remember watching the water turn to ice crystals in the, the air. The ocean. Yes, the ocean. There was ice crystals coming off of the water because the air temperature was so much colder than the water. Wow. And yeah, when we were out standing in formation every day, the formation would just get a little <laughs> tighter. <laughs> so I, I, t I take it you had your pea coat and your trench coat and your, uh, I forgot what they're called, those damn uh, sweaters, the black ones all of that on and trying not to shiver while you're in formation. So you, yeah. when did you finally graduate? Did you at least get to graduate when it warmed up or? No, I believe it was by the time I got out, it was January, late January, early February, something like that. Um, it was a little bit warmer. It was uh, pretty blustery and windy. So all of the pictures we have, you know, our hair flying all over the place when it really shouldn't be. <laughs> so how you really don't care at that point. You just, you're ready to go. <laughs> how was the moment they pinned the, your butter bars on you? That was really exciting. Um, except then I, you know, when they did that, I realized that I completely messed up the uh, way of walking. We were supposed to walk up, shake hands, turn or sidestep or sidestep part of the way to another person's hand and then turn and walk to the other person and I actually sidestep the whole way <laughs> so when they pinned on the butter bars I'm like oh my god I'm such a screw up I'm sure they all noticed <laughs> did your family pin them on or did uh did the command the command did I asked them oh that's cool yeah I really really appreciated my gunnery sergeant and chief they were amazing actually all of the leadership was there was incredible so, so was was a gunnery sergeant the one who the french-speaking marine no he was actually in charge of a different class um but we just had this you know thing going on and he would scream at me in the chow hall and i'd go running to see what he wanted and he would you know, say something encouraging, like this time you're going to class up, right? Root, you're, you've got this. <laughs> Tomorrow you're going to rock in PT or whatever. <laughs> and then I would say, yes, sir. And I'd run away and he, he would turn to another candidate and be like, I don't know why she thinks I'm always going to yell at her. <laughs> <laughs> so um, during that six weeks of being in limbo, did you ever think about quitting? I thought I did. I was writing a letter, you know, like once a week to somebody. I don't think so. I, I remember looking around. I was looking out a lot at the bay in Newport from the barracks. And I'm just like, no, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. You know, I'm not going to let a temporary muscle problem in my neck stop me this is going to be an amazing opportunity and I'm going to have a career that I love and right before I left DC all kinds of weird things started happening 
like I was getting off the metro to go somewhere and somebody started following me down the street yelling, captain, captain, trying to get my attention. And then I turned around and they're like, you're a captain, aren't you? I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who you're looking for. And I kept walking, but I'm like, that's really random. Okay. (laughs) So you have a army doppelganger somewhere. Maybe. Or maybe as a time traveler from the future. (laughs) Possibly. I hope they were more successful than I was. <laughs> True. So how was your, how was checking in at your first command or actually, because you went to Intel school yes. after, and if it's anything like the enlisted side, it's a pretty long school. Yes. Um, so I had a couple months of just doing barrack inspections uh, before Intel school and it Yay. was really relaxed and you know, I would go in every day. What do you want me to do? I'm here. I'll do anything you say. <laughs> really looking for a chief or somebody to, you know, come over and say, okay, here, here's what we really need help with. And I expected it to be kind of menial or not interesting, but <laughs> I didn't mind. I just wanted to get to know people and get to work. Um, but really, they only needed me for a couple hours a day every day to do inspections. So I did that and kept running in the afternoons and keeping up with the PT and trying to do things that I thought would be relevant to intelligence training. So then you class up there. How was, I I know there's not a lot that you can say, but how was that school with someone with your educational background? went to college a little bit early, went to a uh, overseas master's program, taught a little bit in Turkey. What was Navy instruction like relative oh to your gosh. other experiences? You know, I, I was expecting to have something negative to say, but I really don't. I, they were excellent. Um, every part of the training was completely different. Uh, There was a lot of rote memorization that I wasn't very successful at, but everything was broken down into segments. It was discussing things like how, as an analyst, you would have a bias. uh, And that was actually more in-depth than what we had talked about in grad school. Um, Then other aspects were completely focused on intelligence studies, which is very, very different from international affairs. So So even even though I knew how to kind of analyze the big picture about what a country is doing or the political leader has in mind, um, intelligence school was focused on how to get the facts to back those opinions up. So what is intelligence studies? Are you like learning about the history of intelligence gathering or is that just something completely different? Um, You can start off with a little history, but it's talking about different assets for collecting intelligence, uh, different types of intelligence, um, pointing out a bias that any one type of intelligence might have. And, you know, on the American side, we are very good at collecting a lot of raw data. Um, We have 
you know, communication intelligence, human intelligence, uh, electronics intelligence, geospatial, all kinds of different uh, information streams coming in. But at the point that it comes in, that is raw intelligence data. And it was our job as officers to turn that into analysis. Oh, so we, wow. uh, we have to kind of take all of this information from different sources, work a lot with our enlisted staff um, because they're the experts on deciphering all of that raw data and understanding what it means and then put it back into the larger picture for our senior officers so that they can make decisions. So now speaking of your enlisted staff, um, even as an O1 uh, ensign or in the other services, a first lieutenant or a second lieutenant, you are in a position of leadership. In the Navy, junior officers typically rely on their chiefs, but do they, in your community, is there an inherent emphasis on leadership during the school outside of what you got from OCS or, cause you guys are so compartmentalized. Yeah, we had, I think one chief in charge of our class at Intel school and I didn't really, I don't know. I didn't really look up to her. I always thought she was kind of flighty or she didn't give the class a lot of attention. <laughs> but I mean, was there, was there a, was there a piece in, in the education on leadership or was that no, leadership, all goes back to OCS? Yeah. Leadership training is all in OCS. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you, how Never mind. I'm not going to ask how long the school is because I know it's long. Um, when you finally graduate school, how are your orders um, selected? Um, you know, I'm not entirely sure. They asked us our first three choices. Okay, so they did and, give you a wish list. Yes, and as far as I know, most people got what was in their top three. Uh, the lieutenants were in charge of everything. They were kind of the face for us in Intel school and they were really fantastic. So um, these were the O3s? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they were really knowledgeable. They would kind of get us through briefs if they thought they were too boring or, you know. We had a lot of um, training exercises that were coming out of major Intel agencies. I remember even going up to DC and having kind of tours of places like the Pentagon and DIA to see how each agency was different from the others and how everyone was kind of specialized. So training was really good. Um, I think they kind of got a feel for our personalities and also helped the commands out in the Navy decide which, uh, uh, ensign would be best for their command. Cause I remember seeing something and I think, um, Anna told me when she went, uh, when she was on the podcast about at the Academy, they kind of have like a draft, like you apply for your top three and then ships will say, okay, we want this person. We want that person. We want this person to come over to say the enterprise or to the Arleigh Burke, uh, Burke can't talk today. 
So though you may have said you wanted um, West Coast, a ship may have wanted you because of your skill set, and it would be on the East Coast. Do, do you think that's what happened with some of the people? Was the command the different commands saw your folders and was like, "Oh, Laura, Turkish, we want her," uh, versus yeah. versus someone else? Yeah, um, I, I do remember their what are they called? The there was somebody telling us what openings there were. Oh, so the detailers. When we, the detailers, thank you. <laughs> it's been a long time. Uh, the detailers kind of told us what was available. And then within those parameters, we would decide what our first three choices were. Um, I didn't really know what to write. I mean, I had kind of some ideas that I wanted to go back to Europe or I wanted to work with European and um, Central Asian type issues. So I basically just put my top three to focus on those. Um, and I was really surprised what came back. And I was already having some health problems, but I was supposed to go to Comfibron 4 in Norfolk. So an amphibious and, unit? Yes. And be pretty much at the command level um, or working in, in that level for the whole amphibious assault group. The lieutenant commander and the lieutenant reached out to me and they were amazing. I mean, I was so excited to go. <laughs> so you went from utter pacifist to I'm now going to be with an amphibious assault group and I'm excited. Oh, hell yeah. It was super cool. I mean, they, they're like, okay, we're first stop is West Africa and we got to teach you know, this Navy had to do counter piracy operations. And by the way, they speak French. <laughs> like, ah, oh my okay. God. Perfect. Well, well there, there's the link right there is your French speaking skills. <laughs> yeah. And then, then maybe we're not sure we're going to go do this and your Turkish might be really handy. So they, they really like lined it all up. Um, and by the way, the Lieutenant commander is prior enlisted so he's only like a year and a half, two years from retirement. Uh, he took me out to lunch and he's like, look, I don't want to do any work. You're in charge. You're <laughs> the, only, the only thing is that I don't want you to have any secrets. If something goes on, I need to know about it. And I'm like, You're, are, are you the perfect boss? Like, this is amazing. <laughs> so cool. so you, you, you got exposed to your first roadie, retired on active duty. <laughs> he was fantastic <laughs> so how was that command then um i didn't make it i oh man this is probably one of the biggest regrets of my entire life i ended up in the hospital about two weeks before i was supposed to go join the command Ooh. and we saw that I was collapsing. I was having all kinds of muscle issues and my hands and feet weren't working. So we were doing another tour somewhere in Norfolk on the submarine intelligence and I fell down the ladder. And finally, someone's like, we've noticed you're having some problems. You need to go get it checked out. I was trying so hard to kept, to sweep it under the rug because 
I was all about Confibron. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah. So we got to, I got to the neurology department and a very good neurologist um, took a look at things. They did some diagnostic testing and he basically picked a needle out of the haystack. He's like, I think you have this type of muscular dystrophy. Uh, we really can't have you deploy or go on to sea duty until we figure this out. Um, if you're really hell bent on going to this command, then I can try to say that there might be a delayed um, progression of this disease. But if it is what I think it is, you're going to have to get out of the Navy. Oh. Yeah. So I called up my mentor in DC, who is um, a JAG officer. And I just asked her honestly what sea duty was like. And we had a heart to heart. I was really hoping she would say that I could go and do my job and deploy and have that full Navy experience. But she told me if there is any question or any reasonable doubt that physically you can't do your job, you are endangering someone else's life. So the responsible thing to do is to ask for short duty until you figure it out. And maybe it isn't what the doctor thinks. And then you can just go back to sea duty. So yeah, that's, that's what we did. <laughs> so as you got that, um, as you got that diagnosis, you're fairly close with your family, or at least it sounds like you were, did you reach out to them? No. So you just trucked on to shore duty. Yes. Where did you end up going? Um, I was very lucky to be stationed back in DC, which was kind of familiar territory for me. Um, I was at Office of Naval Intelligence and they had to take me off the intelligence watch floor because the doctor's orders kept coming back that I couldn't work so many hours. Uh, I was really, really in a dark place. Um, my body at that point had shut down. Um, I remember being on some pretty heavy heart medications uh, that they use to treat types of muscular dystrophy right off the bat. And I would be laying in bed at night and literally feel my heart stop beating. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Or not wake up and not make it to work on time. Uh, the watch floor really didn't like that. There were a couple of lieutenants that kind of probably were sick of me. So they put me in a submarine unit. And at that point, I was trying to go through the motions to at least get my designator pin, but I didn't even make that either. I mean, I was in Bethesda a couple of times a week, driving around the beltway. Um, a couple times I would fall asleep at the wheel or my heart rate would just drop and I don't remember where I was or what I was doing. Uh, physically, I couldn't 
really use my hands or feet. And I was trying really, really hard to keep up the PT so that I could pass whatever test might be on the horizon, but I just couldn't do it. So at some point in time during your treatment, you realized the, gosh, it sounds so cold, that the end of your Naval career was coming. At what point in time did you meet up with Navy Safe Harbor? Um, the first time I met up with them was 2012, uh, and it was through Bethesda. I wasn't inpatient there. I was always outpatient, but they got the Safe Harbor rep to just help me transition. Um, I think she helped me set up the CNP exam in D.C., and you know, work with the JAG officers in Bethesda um, to talk about TRICARE and the DOD rating. And it it was all kind of a blur in my head. Um, Safe Harbor tried to put me in an internship in DIA, which was an amazing opportunity. But I think I was I was so heavily medicated and kind of like out of it. I don't really. Yeah. (laughs) I, yeah, I can imagine that. So you, did you, how hard was it for you to accept the fact that it was coming to an end so quick? I, it was impossibly hard. I thought my life was over. I thought I was going to be better off dead. I was sure. Um, there was a lot of like wishing that I had just gone to combat and died there, <laughs> at least with some honor and respect versus succumbing to a degenerative disease that ruined my life. Um, you know, a, a lot, I was kind of obsessed with the idea, like, if I'm going to go out, I want to go out with a bang. I want people to remember. I want to do something for others. I don't want to just end up this old lady dying slowly in a lot of pain in a hospital bed where no one cares. That was literally my worst nightmare. So speaking of not with going out with a bang and being remembered in a way, you had an opportunity to kind of be remembered differently. And that was through the warrior games. Yes. So here you are at your downside, your, your dark moment. And someone talks to you about sports as you're going through muscular dystrophy. Doesn't sound like the two match. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What was your initial reaction when you were pitched the idea? Okay, well, at the time, there was David Pennington, a retired master chief in charge of the Safe Harbor program, and he was just, you know, larger than life. So he actually came to Office of Naval Intelligence and handed me a bag for 2012 Warrior Games full of uniforms and training gear and all kinds of stuff. And the JAG officers and the doctors wouldn't sign off. So I I couldn't go that year and they sent someone else in my place. So I was like, okay, good. <laughs> well, I mean, so were you even exposed to no, any, nothing. like he just found your name on a list and was like, okay. He found me through Bethesda and that was it. And I, I mean, I was really trying to do well in DIA because I wanted to keep working in intelligence and 
at some point I was like, okay, well, if I'm a civilian in intelligence, that's still pretty good. Um, so I, you know, I was giving it my best shot. There were just, there were so many limitations on what I could do physically or in terms of attention span and memory because of the medications that my hands were kind of tied, but I wasn't thinking about sports at all. So it turned out that I think he was a retired captain in the submarine unit. He had lost his leg uh, from an airplane accident. And when I went to show him about Warrior Games, he was like, I think you should do this. You know, when I lost my leg, I started doing adaptive sports and it really helped me and it helped me get back to my life. And now I have this job in ONI and, you know, I'm doing much better than if I hadn't. And so I had a really long talk with him and my command was so supportive. Um, and this was all submariners. They were just the greatest people. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, by 2013, the doctors had cleared me, the JAG officers had cleared me and they said, go give it a shot. <laughs> so how was, uh, so 2013 would have been what the second or third warrior games? The third, I believe. So were you guys still up in Colorado Springs? Yes. Yes. But the first trip I remember was we were being flown to Hawaii and I was like, Oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to make the flight, let alone the week of training. Like this is, <laughs> this is kind of nuts. What are we doing? Um, and I remember, you know, flying into Honolulu and looking down and I saw a submarine and a, uh, destroyer go by in the water and I'm like okay this could be this is going to be exciting at least to see Pearl Harbor and this component of naval history will be really exciting because my grandfather came out of Pearl Harbor before he went to the Marianas oh really yeah so was he a Pearl Harbor survivor or uh it was he went to Pearl Harbor right after the attack from Brooklyn Navy Yard Oh, okay. um, but he was recruited by the CBs to be an electrical engineer and he was a warrant officer. Oh, wow. So as I learned more about that time in history, they didn't even have a training program. They were being taken out of places like Brooklyn Navy Yard and just sent to yeah. the South Pacific. Um, so Pearl Harbor was the stopover before they could get to the Marianas. And oh, okay. I remember him, he didn't talk a lot about it, but he remembered uh, the Marines were being told that they were supposed to physically catch bullets for any CB officers going in. Oh, because wow. Because they had to clear the airstrips for the rest of the forces to get in. Um, and I just, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine. Um, so that was really exciting and we got there and, you know, everyone's new and there I am with a bunch of <laughs> combat veterans. <laughs> the, the running joke from the photographer was just kind of how ridiculous I looked. I looked so foolish. 
um, I fell down all the time. I'm kind of goofy. I giggle a lot. It's, it was absurd. All these other guys are completely shell shocked and they've lost limbs. They're traumatized. They're coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan. And there I am on the videos, like adaptive sports. This is great. <laughs> so uh, how- I'm here because I fall down a lot. <laughs> How many females were on that, uh, on that team? Uh, I think less than five, actually. Not uh-huh. many. So how did you, without jumping too far ahead, shooting became a thing for you. Um, how did you find shooting? Um, You know, it just sounded interesting and they safe Harbor encouraged us to try everything. So I was trying track and field. I tried swimming. I tried shooting, tried archery, cycling. Um, I think I was slated to try sitting volleyball, but I just didn't have the energy for it right off the bat. Um, But with muscular dystrophy, I was so worn down and exhausted from the several years of pretty intense physical training that by the time I got to Safe Harbor, it was like, you want me to sit down and stare at a piece of paper and shoot a rifle that doesn't move? (laughs) We got this. (laughs) Don't sweat. (laughs) So so you end up making the team. I made the team <laughs> at your first warrior games, you know, the actual games themselves. How did you do in shooting? Um, well, I almost, I thought I wasn't going to make the team because I adjusted everything the wrong way in trials. So I actually had very bad scores in trials, but again, it was the group that matters. Um, so we worked with coach Kimes and coach McMullen a lot about mental training. And every day I would just be doing what coach Kimes would talk about sitting down and visualizing myself going into competition. Uh, We didn't particularly have a ton of time on the rifles, just like now Um, there wasn't more than two weeks of actual hands-on training. Um, but every day I would just take time to sit somewhere while I was waiting for a doctor or whatever, and visualize going into the range and being calm and setting up my stuff and, and taking one shot at a time. And it all happened just like he told us to visualize, like I walk in, it was insanely male dominated. I mean, there were I think there were less than 10 women of all of the teams on the range and we're in the Olympic training center. So the Paralympic team was there in full force. Some of the para coaches were there. It was really overwhelming and exciting. So how supportive were the, um, were the Paralympic team, not the coaches, but the actual shooter shooting team. At the time, they were very supportive. Um, They were really all about the veterans and just coming through and getting to know each and every one of us. Um, I still remember Jasmine, Ryan, and another guy, I think Mike, 
uh, a lot of different people were there. They, it was great to have them there. And of course, that, that was their house. <laughs> that's where they train yeah, all the that, time. That's why I was asking. <laughs> so it was, it was really exciting to see where success in shooting could go. And, you know, we were really naive and we thought, oh, if we're good at this, there might be funding or the possibility to become a Paralympian. Um, so it was, it was a very exciting time. Um, I think all of the teams at that time, they didn't have the 40 person cap like they do now. Um, so the teams were enormous. I think the Navy team was 50 or 60 people. Some oh, of the wow. other teams were 80 people. So were you, okay. So like when we went, when I went through in 2018 and it's always being reinforced every camp that we go to multiple sports, multiple sports, multiple sports with a larger team like that, were you guys able to get away with just one or two sports? I think a lot more. Uh, I still had two or three. That's but because they, you're an overachiever. Yeah, they didn't have, uh, most people had two or three at that point, except for the ultimate champion who did a little bit of everything. But they didn't have as many sports either. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, there, there was a lot fewer sports back then. Yes. And you, you actually met one of my friends um, at your Warrior Games, I believe. Uh, him and I flew over from Germany on our medevac flight, Mike Dayton. Yes, bubbles. <laughs> uh, that's not the special name I gave him, um, Sasquatch, because that boy is hairy. He's one of my favorite. <laughs> he, he's a great guy. <laughs> but I mean, so for you, seeing all these different people is where I'm going with this, whether it's Mikey or yourself, you guys all come from different things. Like you said, a bunch of guys, combat veterans, PTSD, TBI, missing limbs, uh, Sasquatch getting his hair burned off. <laughs> yes, Mike, I said that. Um, you with, we miss you <laughs> with more of a, of a, uh, illness versus an injury. I know from just from the last camp in 2020, right before the pandemic broke out, I want to guess that probably three quarters of the people who came to that camp were more illness than injury, but yet. No, no, not at all. Oh, the, the, recent the last one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But now we all leave as closer to a family than some people have as actual family. How was, how did that affect you? Um, I think profoundly, uh, I didn't, I don't have a lot of family support. My mom has kind of been dealing with some severe illnesses. She had cancer it seems like she's got dementia or some type of memory loss that makes her very agitated. So I don't really have a mother for about the 20 last 20 years of my life. Uh, like not in the, you know, the role that most people expect a mother to have, to have their mother. 
And my father is a Vietnam vet um, who clearly had like PTSD or some type of issues. Since then, he's had a heart attack and a stroke and has suffered from skin cancer, um, all from Agent Orange exposure. So I didn't really know, trying to heal myself, it's almost like trying to heal my whole family. And having that support from the Navy definitely saved my life. Um, or at least that camaraderie with, with other veterans. And, you know, I missed three shots out of, on that first competition in Colorado Springs. And I thought I was out of the competition. I looked around the room. I saw these SOCOM guys who were snipers and everyone was so battle hardened. <laughs> I didn't expect anything. I w was happy just to be there competing and you know, getting to know people. Um, so I remember walking up to the coaches and apologizing because I didn't think I did very well in the competition. And all of a sudden the results were posted and all of the women from the other teams were coming up to me and they're like, you've got to win it. You've got to win it for us. This is, this isn't even about you. You win this medal for us. <laughs> so was it a, was it a sudden death or was it a shoot off? Um, it, it was the format where it was a 10 shot final. Um, you would take your lead from the qualifying round into the final with you. So I was already three or four points ahead. And the two closest competitors were Marines and they were down about four points. Um, so we were adding decimal places in the final in, in rifle in the qualifying round, it was only a whole uh, scores. And I had a 397 out of 400. We had another double amputee Navy veteran who was an EOD guy who had like a 399 out of 400, but in a different category. Uh, so we both won golds that day. <laughs> How was that for you? I mean, I can only imagine with everything you went through, it's probably pretty profound, but did it really affect you? Definitely. I, it, it rebuilt a lot of my confidence. Um, I was pretty broken up. Um, not really, I didn't think I was going to live much longer. <laughs> they told me many times in Bethesda, don't get your hopes up. It doesn't look good. You, I had a lot of damage to my organs from the muscular dystrophy. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't yeah. realize that. So you, you get your gold medal, you in rifle, but there's yes. two, there's two shooting competitions in yes. in the warrior games. How'd you do with the pistol? Um, I didn't shoot pistol, but I did standing rifle. And I had only trained like two or three times on standing before we got to competition. And I made that final, but I was in eighth place. And I had no hope of making up that kind of uh, distance. 
So I just had fun with it and I was enjoying the competition and there were two other women up there in the finals. So we were kind of hooting and hollering and smiling for the cameras and having a good time. (laughs) So how, how how was the female reaction when you got the gold? Were they all about about you yeah there was I mean I was in utter shock (laughs) um I heard a lot of screaming from the uh stands which at the time they weren't encouraging people to be make noise and be loud and shooting you had to be quiet and all of a sudden I heard everyone behind me kind of start roaring and I remember uh we had a senior chief a bunch of senior chiefs there too and I could hear them screaming my name and I was just like oh my god (laughs) this is surreal (laughs) so after that you you guys are done you come back to DC how much longer were you on active duty after that um I think less than a year uh it just took a few more months um we were, we were kind of waiting to see, hoping that the sports program would have made me a little bit better and get me on the right track to go back to active duty, but it just, it was not happening. Um, but I showed up in the office after I returned from the trip and I was going to go in to tell them, Hey, look at this medal I won. Thanks for letting me go. And I checked my email first and the command had already known and they emailed everybody on the DCY distribution list that I won shooting medal and was the first woman to do so. So I, I was kind of sitting there, you know, with my coffee at my computer going, wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so how was the reception when you actually saw saw your command? Oh, they were ecstatic. They were really happy. They were proud. Um, it, it made it back to my mentors all in the DC area. Um, the JAG officer who was my mentor was like right across buildings from Navy Safe Harbor. So she knew about it and it was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so that captain that retired captain that uh you had mentioned earlier with the the amputee did he give you an i told you so moment that it would help or no he wasn't really like that not 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 like a a negative way but like yeah like like re-encouraging or encouraging you like hey see it does help I remember he had kind of a serious exterior, but he was like, yeah, see what you can do. What's next? (laughs) So did you, I think we had this conversation in Galveston. Did you go back for a second Warrior Games as an athlete? Uh, I did. I went to 2014. Uh, I can't remember if I was on active duty or not. I was trying really hard for that one. Uh, that was the year that another Navy female took the gold in the finals. So, I mean, we were just going back and forth, but she seriously wanted that gold medal in prone. (laughs) 
So did you take the so silver then? I took the silver <laughs> and believe me, she earned it. <laughs> um, and then I got the gold in standing, which was the first female to win and first standing rifle medal for Navy too. Was that a good redemption for your, uh, for your earlier competition? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, the second year I was giving standing a lot more uh, focus because that is actually how they compete in air rifle competitions in the Olympics. Um, it, It was a little tough to work around the classifications and shooting and for warrior games because, um, the, the level of disability just was not equalized for open category. Um, I, I remember I lost, my, my arm was like frozen, almost paralyzed for a couple minutes in the finals. I was kind of looking back at the coaches like. <laughs> Help. <laughs> so what, is, what was your category then as MD? I was listed as open for shooting. Really? So yeah, what most things I think. Okay. Cause I thought MD would have given you some range of motion issues. It, it does, but I mean, uh, just in terms of classification. Yeah. So they always kept me as open for whatever reason. They kept saying that they thought I could stand through the competition. They kept trying to tell me it was more pain then loss of range of motion, which wasn't really true. Um, But of course, I was on some pretty heavy muscle relaxers at the time. Um, So maybe it wasn't as bad as it is now. (laughs) (laughs) So the the reason why I'm asking is because I know my my side is archery and it's pretty much open and then visually impaired. I, yeah. I don't, uh, and, uh, pull tap. So mouth shooting those three, I forgot. Does rifle do the one through six category? No. Um, based on the Paralympics, they have three categories. Um, actually I'm not sure the Paralympics might be more in depth. So, oh, okay. Uh, For warrior games, there are three categories. There's open, which means that you can usually stand or support the weight of the rifle. Uh, SH1 is lower body impairment specifically where you cannot stand in standing competition. You have to be seated Um, and just holding the rifle. And then SH2, which is upper body impairment where you're shooting prone and standing off of the stand. I I think, and now that I'm thinking about it and I'm surprised I didn't bring it up earlier. So people understand, because you had mentioned something about the decimal points uh, in your first finals. The size of the targets, what, maybe eight by eight? Uh, Yes, it's, let's see, it's about, it's a little smaller than about a quarter from 10 meters, which is about 33 feet. And you're shooting a 10 meter shot, right? Yes. So it's, this is all precision. That's um, what I was getting at. Like yeah, the bullseye, your, your, your bullseye is not actually your bullseye. Correct. It's literally like the head of a 
pin. <laughs> and, and so a 10.9 is when the pellet is perfectly centered around that little pinpoint at the center of the target. And so when you start looking at some of the, the scores, you're seeing people do like 10, 9, 10, 9, 10, 9, 10, 9, 10, 9, 10, 8. And they're like in fourth place. <laughs> like, like a uh, millimeter or two off actually changes. Um, maybe not. Maybe more like at the Olympic level, they're standing and they're shooting mostly tens. Uh, but the range of the decimal point can flip flop back and forth. Yeah. Um, for prone in the Paralympics, you pretty much have to be above a 10.7 average to go anywhere in the Paralympics. And that, I mean, again, that's by normal shooting standards, that's yes. a bullseye every time. And yes, for you guys, that's off bullseye is a 10.7. Yes. <laughs> well, 10.6 <laughs> would be. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know what I mean? It's like the, the, the difference between a 10.9 and a 10.7 is significant. It's about a millimeter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And honestly, I, I give credit to everyone who shoots, uh, standing cause I've shot those rifles before and they're not light and they're also not, they're awkward to say the least. They're yes. They're about but, 13 pounds. <laughs> are they really that heavy? Yes. And you're usually suited up in the constrictive jacket and pants, yeah. uh, to minimize muscle movement. Um, but the, the main difference is that I really, when I started coaching, I noticed that whatever's going on on someone's target is usually a good reflection of what's going on in their head. Yeah. Um, so if they're, you know, just kind of stressed or distracted or they can't relax completely and focus on every individual second of what they're doing, it, it becomes apparent on their target. Um, so this is something that I really liked about shooting was it, it kind of put veterans back in the moment, um, taking them out of whatever they were struggling with. And we would always say, you know, you can hang your problems up on the tree outside and leave them out there when you come into the range. And when you go back out, it's your choice if you want to pick them back up or not. And so, so now retiree, Laura is brought on to coach yes. for the team. How did that happen? And what was your initial reaction when I'm assuming coach Kimes probably invited you to, to help out? Um, I was, I was kind of surprised. Um, so the Paralympic coach at the time had asked me to go do my coach training and I did it with another shooter who was you know kind of like my partner in crime John Arbino who's now head of PVA shooting and I it was pretty clear that I wasn't going to classify on the level of disability for the shooting team so he asked me to come to the uh, coach conference and to do that training, first level of training at the Olympic Training Center. Um, and I also did it with the second with Bob 
and David Kimes out in California, their local range. But this was all NRA training. So it was very, very different from what I expected professionally and what I thought USA shooting, which is the governing body of shooting would want. I was willing to do it. Um, I was, you know, really motivated by the idea of being successful at something and using that success to help other veterans. Um, so that, that was really enticing to me. They had kind of had me in a more of a mentorship role for the team by about 2014, 2015. So I was, you know, if the coaches weren't present, they told me to help others, you know, communicate on their behalf, things like that. Um, there was kind of a learning curve along the way because I wasn't officially a coach and a lot of veterans didn't take very kindly to having someone else tell them what to do. <laughs> you think? Yeah, I had to work on the approach a lot. <laughs> so what was it about the NRA training that um, you thought was a little bit different than what you would have expected from, I mean, obviously I'm assuming NRA, when you say NRA training, we're talking about actual firearms, not air rifles. Yeah, it was, it was very based in the books. Um, some people were familiar with air rifles, some weren't. Um, there was just a level of professionalism with the Olympic governing bodies that you expect um, and expect on their, their teams that was not so important to the NRA. Um, so about, I, I ended up continuing with some NRA events and shooting at nationals and kind of getting to know other types of shooting, but there was a lot of misogyny and I don't, I don't care what they say. The NRA is a political organization. They were calling me up more interested in how I was going to vote than if my coaching credentials were up to date or if oh, okay. I was growing as a coach. So they, they basically didn't care uh, about the mission of helping vets through adaptive sports or helping people transition out of the military. They, they had their agenda. They were a, a little belligerent about the way they approached it. It's interesting that the Olympic, uh, that USA shooting would use them as a governing body, especially because if I'm correct, USA shooting doesn't use firearms. They use air rifles, right? Uh, that's correct. Now the USA shooting does have shotgun and, uh, 22 competitions Oh, okay. And, okay. and pistol. So they do have active firearms, but USA shooting actually broke or the Olympics actually broke with the DOD sponsored warrior games back oh, okay. then. Um, so by, I think 2015, we were no longer at the Olympic training center. I'm not sure what happened in the conference rooms, but they couldn't find an agreement. Um, and it was largely, the mission was different. You know, the DOD wants to engage veterans of all disabilities, including invisible ones, like, you, you know, and you, the Paralympics are very much focused on physical disabilities that they can quantify and 
categorize across the countries. Yeah, that so, makes that, and that makes total sense that they would want. Yeah, that they're. It sounds horrible to say it like this, but that their time would be better spent working with people that they can recruit from versus dealing with probably by 2016, uh, 2018, when I went, it, it, there was a vast majority of, or not a vast majority, but there's a big majority of invisible wounds across all the teams that yes. couldn't have been classified. Definitely. That's gotten progressively um, to become more of a problem in recent years, just because the war is dwindling down too. Yeah. Um, but you know, it also, it also lends kind of this, I've developed a distaste for a lot of veterans organizations. Um, yeah. Because they're, they're all about giving veterans a week away from their real life in adaptive sports and this is all fine and well at certain points of their rehabilitation but there reaches a point where you've got to focus on getting back to living and accomplishing your own dreams and we shouldn't have been pumping people's heads with the idea that everybody can become a paralympian because you would have done it already. That, <laughs> you that's true. The military. I mean, <laughs> now, mind you, I do it. I do have to say that there have been several uh, military Paralympians. I don't know if they've ever come or how many of them actually came out of the Warrior Games, but where the Adaptive Sports Program may have actually opened the door to go. Oh, let me go investigate that. So I can completely understand that. Oh, and that's that's fantastic, but. You know, in, in the case of those athletes, many of them were collegiate level athletes or high school athletes that were very successful. They had yeah. some kind of foundation to build on that made them appropriate for the Olympic and Paralympic level. Yeah, definitely. You know? <laughs> so I got to touch on one coaching milestone. I, I, I don't know whether it's actual milestone for you, but to me, it seems like it would be. So in 2016, the Navy hosted the warrior game so what is it after 2015 every year a different branch of service hosts the games uh yes 2014 i believe was no 2015 was marines 2016 was army 2017 was navy was it 2017 yes chicago so you're coaching at the navy's home where boot camp is that yes and um, i was actually a coach for team army <laughs> oh damn you damn you i didn't realize that so damn you just took the wind out of my whole thing <laughs> <laughs> they were offering the job <laughs> okay so but how was that being in chicago being a navy you know a naval officer you're in our backyard for boot camp and all of that. How was that? How were how were the veterans and the uh, wounded warriors treated at these more open, like downtown Chicago events? Oh, you know that was really one of the best warrior games, in my humble opinion, um, because the Navy went to great lengths to engage the community and bring the community in Ch- of Chicago around 
we were in a venue that people could access and come and spectate. And I, I really thought that was going to bring a lot more money and attention to kind of the power of adaptive sports, not only for disabled veterans, but for people with disabilities in general. Um, I was hoping it would bring more attention to the Paralympics and, you know, get people involved if they had kids that were facing disabilities just to show the healing power of sports and community. So I was really proud of the Navy for hosting in Chicago. And I know that they got a lot of uh, pushback from the Department of Defense or other branches because there's this idea that it, no one's really right or wrong. Uh, the other branches have traditionally wanted to have it on a military base that's cheaper. It's easier for military families, but it is more closed off from society. And the Navy went in the other direction where they wanted maximum exposure. So, I mean, there were billboards of Team Navy all over, of all of the athletes, all over Chicago. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is really exciting. Yeah. Cause I feel like uh, my games in 2018 at uh, the air force Academy. Yeah. They had the opening ceremonies, which the public was invited into, but I mean, come on, let's face it. How, how many of the public actually came? I mean, the sands yeah. looked fairly full, but how much of that was DOD people and the air force Academy is not exactly the easiest thing to get on and off of. No. And they tried to shock the shit out of us in the archery and shooting venue. Oh my God, that was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, never have, well, I don't even, I don't even know what it was. Was it those stupid mats? It, yeah, nothing was grounded. And we had a bunch of electronic equipment in a metal building with a floor that had no grounding oh, because they God. wanted to protect the, basketball courts below it or something there was basketball courts below it I, something like that you know there's just there's all kinds of things that you think you wouldn't have to point out to senior level military but now that i've been exposed to the differences between all of us i, I really it's come to life you know and my ocs <laughs> training officers <laughs> I remember the last thing that they told us was you, when you get out into the fleet, you hold your head up high because not all officers are created equally. And we break you down for a reason. We don't want you walking into a place where you don't know anything and treating people like garbage and expecting your salute. That's not, that's not how OCS officers behave. You walk in, you give someone their silver dollar for saluting you because they notice that you're an ensign and they're being polite or they're respecting the rank. It has nothing to do with you. Are you referring to a certain uh, school <laughs> that makes, um, God, I forgot what they're called, uh, midshipmen? Uh, all of them. I mean, as an athlete in West Point, which was my last Warrior Games on the competition side, I was horrified. And by the cadets or by just the environment? I think the cadets were okay. The officers in charge, I think a couple of them lost their jobs. <laughs> they were pretty ridiculous. 
Um, but just saying rude things, like I, a general came through the backstage where we were about to get our shooting medals. And that was the first time we had three women on the podium for shooting ever oh, wow. in any warrior games in the biggest category, open prone. So there were two Navy and one Air Force and a general came through and he goes, oh, I really want to shake your hands. Who won the medals? And we raised our hands and we were all excited to go shake his hand and meet him. And he goes, I'm not shaking your hand. You're not army. And I'm like, "Uh, okay, (laughs) then don't. Wow. (laughs) Have a nice day. (laughs) Well, you know, during my uh, recovery time at BAMSI, I, I realized the, I didn't deal with a lot of air force. Um, and you may have saw it at Bethesda because Bethesda, by the time you were there, was Bethesda, Walter Reed had kind of merged. But yeah. the Marine Corps, by far, almost felt like it bent over backwards to take care of its wounded warriors, sick, sick injured, Ill, all of those guys. The Navy, the Navy active duty side did a good job. The Navy reserve side had a lot of issues for their reservists who were mobilized, but were still better by far than the army. The army has a very, very, at least back in 2007 to 11 ish, had a very toxic uh, orientation towards any of their wounded warriors, any of their sick, injured, ill people going through med boards. They were just treated horribly. Um, Well, I don't, it's easy to make judgments when we don't live in that house, but I, I did see a lot of rec therapists in the army. Just, I mean, their lives were consumed with making life better for their veterans. Oh no, I'm talking about the the staff, not yeah. the not not the caregivers. The caregivers were second to none, but they, the cadre, what they called their cadre, because um, at some point in time I was living in the barracks, they would have these guys up at five thirty formations. Yeah. Well, they're on sleep meds and all of that. There was a whole bunch of stuff where the army couldn't distinguish between these guys are sick, injured, ill, blown up, going through a med board. They are not going to be retained versus I am a sergeant and this is my job to do, but I'm going to go to another command after this. Well, they they would try to uh, cut their disability ratings because they didn't show up for formation. So they, they had their whole shtick, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. So um, sorry about that sidetrack, <laughs> but I do want to get into a couple other things before I let you go. So after you retired, um, you found another passion that you're going to go do today here shortly. So yes. I don't want to keep you that much longer. Um, so How? at first, oh gosh, who was it? Sailing was always something I've wanted to try. Uh, Coach Kimes talks a lot about it because he used to sail. Uh, It kind of has that meditative quality that shooting does, but it's, you know, you're in a a boat with other veterans. So there's a lot more camaraderie and you just have to pay attention to everything. the, The water, the wind, the people in front of you, other boats. Um, it was just a lot more dynamic than sitting inside all day, staring at a target. Um, my aunt and uncle had sailed around the world uh, before I joined the Navy while I was 
they they actually encouraged me to go to France for grad school. Um, and they would send me postcards from everywhere off the boat, Papati, Tahiti, you know, wherever, the Marshall Islands, <laughs> Panama. Um, so that just really captured my imagination. And I think it was warrior yeah warrior sailing might have come to a warrior games event or they were recruiting at a warrior games event and that's how i found them so did you real quick did you ever do invictus yes in 2014 the first one i know that i saw somewhere i think it was was it sydney that had um sailing yes did you link the two that you had an interest in sailing, warrior sailing, and maybe that you could compete in sailing for Invictus? Uh, you know, they didn't really. Or was that tackle, a one-off? They didn't tackle sailing seriously. And the recruitment process for Invictus is so muddled. And it's like warrior care office. And I don't know, to be honest, like, the first Invictus Games was an incredible experience, but I could not get through the bureaucracy of it all and deciding who they want to represent their country. As an athlete or as a coach? As, as an athlete and as, well, there's no shooting because it's too hard for the European countries to participate with that. Um, there's just too much drama about it. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I appreciate Invictus. It was an incredible experience. I was successful there, but it was also very disorganized. I've um, heard that from more than one person on yeah. various Invictus games. Yeah. So, but back to sailing. So you start down this path and it seems like it's been pretty incredible for you. It has, you know, it's had a lot of bumps in the road too. Um, I, I'm surprised warrior sailing wanted anything to do with me. <laughs> you know, it, if anything, sailing really pointed out that veterans can change a lot through their transition and dealing with a disability. And, you know, they, when I first got there, I was really excited about it. The second time I went, I wasn't so sure. I wasn't comfortable with who I was sailing. I got hit in the head with the boom. It was like, kind of like a mess. So you learned why it was called the boom. <laughs> yes, as did many other veterans. Um, but I just, I didn't know how to stand up for myself too. And I was sick of getting yelled at or having other veterans come in and, you know, act like they know it all. And I was sick of it. <laughs> so I kept participating with warrior sailing program and they do a really good job, you know, exposing veterans to kind of like the top level of sailors out in the competitive racing world, which is incredible. Um, but I also pulled back because I just got embarrassed. There are so many other veterans that act like they are entitled to these programs. They show up getting drunk. They're using drugs. They're, you know, basically being assholes and blaming it on their injuries. And, uh, something that one of our combat wounded veterans in our sailing program said, 
really hit the nail on the head. And he's like, you know, veterans need to accept responsibility just because you're injured or ill and you're dealing with a lot. You don't have the right to treat someone else badly. In fact, that, and that, you know, speaks volumes to other veterans because you're representing all of us. Um, and basically we're not each other's punching bags. So either show up and do the work and make sure that you're moving forward as a person or go be a jerk on your own time. <laughs> yeah. there. I mean, I, coming from my world, I couldn't tell you how many people took advantage of nonprofits. Yeah. Uh, the vast, the vast majority of the people who were on med hold at BAMC between 2007 and 2011 were outstanding, but there were few that yes. absolutely made it about them. Absolutely got grant after grant after grant in terms of hundreds of thousands of dollars, but yes. were NJP because they were delinquent in their credit and had to make everything about them. And it's one of the dark sides that people don't talk about in the, especially the wounded warrior veteran community, because you're right. I, even myself, I held myself back for years because I have PTSD because I have TBI. I can't do this. I can't do that. I, I can justify doing stupid shit because of it. Yeah, but that's the, I never saw you take out kind of all that internal angst. Oh no, that was before we else. met. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> that was long before we met when I finally came to the realization that I can sit here and be miserable or I can actually try to accomplish stuff, but it, you're right. It's absolutely beholden to that individual veteran. Yeah. And people hold. have to want to get better. Yeah. And the problem we're having right now is we're okaying it. That's the big, and that, that issue is not just right now. It's been going on for almost a decade. The constant patting on the back, they see a purple heart on someone's license plate. Thank you for your service. Oh, it's so, it's such a shame that you were wounded. You name, and they, people who say it think they're doing good things for you. But in some oh, ways they're reinforcing the fact that I'm different than you because I'm broken when you just want to be treated like everybody else. And uh, for women, it's even, you know, kind of like a triple slap in the face. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how many times we've all stood there with our brothers, you know, and they're getting thanked for their service. They're getting fussed over. And like, literally we had the USO having ladies, walk us to gates and they were really just all over Sammy and Sammy said she's a veteran too and they completely ignored him and kept fussing over him <laughs> I'm just like yeah I don't know how many fem- I don't know how many female <laughs> veterans actually even female active duty chiefs that I'm friends with who are like yeah, I'll be somewhere and they'll see the Navy license plate and say, oh, well, thank your husband for his service. And it's like, it's uh, ridiculous. Yeah. I, I really, if there is one thing that I do in my life, I want to 
break the stereotype from the 1950s that women did not participate in World War II because women were pivotal in World yeah. War II. <laughs> I have my personal issues with Navy nurses, but if it wasn't for Navy nurses back in World War II, a lot of the guys that were wounded that I would that if I was in World War II, I would have turned patients over to wouldn't have come home. Yeah. Or just think, where did all of the ammunition come from? The yeah. uniforms, everything. Yeah. <laughs> so back real quick. Back to, no, no, that's fine. But uh, back to sailing. So warrior sailing, does he, do they do like combat wounded veterans in Sea Star Base Galveston where you start out on small boats or are you immediately throwing in with people who are on these larger um, ships? Um, uh, no, no. Blank? Not at all. Uh, warrior sailing focuses on the foundations of uh, sailing for the ASA, American Sailing Association, uh, credentials. And they usually break that up into two three-day camps. Um, they've now expanded into getting people certified for basic cruising once you have some experience. But they race mainly sonars like we did in Galveston or J-22, which is a very comparable boat. Uh, and these they, are what under 20 feet. Yeah. Um, like eight, 19 ish, something like yeah. that. Um, but the basics, the fundamentals are all the same minus, you know, some tweaks, you know, the bigger the boat, the more likely it is. You'll have not just a cleat for the sheets, but um, a wench or something like that. Um, because there will be more load on the sails, for example. Um but they focus on teaching fundamentals and getting veterans engaged in their local communities because they're sailing in every one of the 50 states. <laughs> See, people don't realize that. Yeah. So that's their thing. <laughs> but I mean, people, I, I guess people just assume, well, I'm in, I'm in Nevada. There's, where do I sail? There's no ocean. Yeah. Lake so, Tahoe. <laughs> uh, Lake Mead. You, you can put a sailboat in a river if you really needed to probably sure. not the most effective way to sail but you could yeah so i know they're going to park city utah in later this summer are you going to do that no I, i'm not really i only sail with them locally from now on um i i couldn't physically hack the races the big races they and they have so many new people coming in that are all about weeks and weeks of doing that. It is extremely physically demanding and you have to have veterans that want to be a good crew together. So you really have to have everybody on board. So um, now, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, so, but you also don't just sail with, um, with warrior sailing, you sail with another organization, which is, where you brought me into sailing or back into sailing ish. Yes. So a friend of mine that I sail with from warrior sailing in St. Pete, Dave Karras, uh, connected me with combat wounded veterans challenge and they do challenges of sailing, mountaineering and scuba mostly focused on TBI, PTSD or prosthetics research. Um, so they, the scuba challenge, I know brings a lot of, you know, interns in rec therapy and things like that to do research, 
on veterans moving around underwater with their prosthetics. They link them up with an aquanaut um, to replant coral, I believe is part of the challenge. And then sailing was the other challenge that they had that takes place out of Sea Star Base Galveston. So now the difference between uh, warrior sailing and combat wounded veterans challenges, combat wounded veterans challenge is a specific, I don't want to say curriculum, but a specific goal to reach by the, or to attempt to reach by the end of that week of training, right? Yeah. So the veterans challenge is really focused on getting that U.S. sailing level one certification or basic keel boat. Uh, it's about a week of sailing and they throw you right into racing. Now, warrior sailing is more probably focused on the education and then they'll also race, but they're a little more broad spectrum about getting to know the boat, doing bad overboards and all of those things that go into being keelboat certified. So and it's just a different approach. Um, yeah, Combat Wounded likes to have a whole week where veterans can focus on that and they can also do their research on how this helps with TBI or PTSD type injuries. Um, and Warrior Sailing kind of found that their three-day camps had the best result where everyone kind of gets in, learns what they have to, and then goes home. <laughs> so we're, I was going to ask is, so the, the, key differentiator between uh, warrior sailing and combat wounded from a fundraising slash uh, public interest standpoint is the research that combat wounded is doing. Yes. Yes. And, and also, um, let's see, they're both privately funded. Warrior sailing is part of a larger parent organization called the USMMA. Um, and it was founded by a man named Ralph Stites, who's one of the, you know, top names in pro sailing. Um, but he basically broke from Merchant Marines and started a nonprofit side where people can donate their boats for a tax write-off. And the boats will stay in the program for so long and be used at various education programs. Oh, so okay. they do merchant marine education, they do youth sailing development, um, and they also do the veteran sailing component, which is warrior sailing. Okay. So um, with all of this, where do you where do you see yourself with sailing now? I mean, obviously the shooting side of it is limited by a range and equipment. Where sailing, you're in south southern Florida on yeah on the non-miami side thank god um <laughs> but where do you see yourself going with sailing that is a great question um one i've been asking myself a lot lately and i'm gonna actually zoom out a little bit so it's you know all of these adaptive sports programs are great but we also need organizations to remember that having people escape their life or focus on one stage of transition in sports is not actually getting veterans back to their best selves and their best lives. You have to sometimes stay at home and do the work um, or to see where all of this is going or see that people are changing as they're getting further 
and further away from their discharge from the military. So I, I really wanna challenge organizations to look at the whole scope of transitioning veterans and getting them back to living, not just playing. <laughs> yeah, no, I 100% hear you on that. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I didn't know if shooting would be a lucrative thing. I really had the idea that I love coaching and would wanna become a professional coach in some capacity. I love the mental training aspect. I was linking it up to research with neuroscience departments and universities around the country and, you know, working really hard to stay on that cutting edge of research with everything, Heart Math Institute, uh, showing how emotions can either complement or detract from your physical training in different sports. So it's a very dynamic world in sports, but for sailing, I just love being out there on the water and I don't necessarily love being competitive, but I know I love having people out on the water, enjoying nature, you know, seeing what's going on. So I hopefully will be working on my captain's license. Um, it, with a lot of help from sea, sea star base Galveston and the guys there. Yeah. Um, they're, they're great yeah. people. Yeah. And I, I would really like to eventually work on a charter company, something like that. Um, I, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> well, to, to go to something that you just said and to touch on where you're at right now, health-wise, you mentioned um, connecting with some organizations, some medical organizations, the Heart Health or the Heart Map Institute for Sailing. I know that you've kind of taken, I don't want to say an alternative medicine approach, but you've opened your mind to different types of therapies and so forth for your MD. Definitely. Um, is it helping? Uh, yes. And this was a long time in the making. Like my, my master's thesis was all about traditional medicine around the world, basically working with Western medicine and enhancing uh, both economic development, but also the availability of cures for different diseases. So I was already kind of open to that because in grad school, people came back from their research in West Africa and they got malaria several times. And the only thing that worked for them were ancient Chinese remedies. <laughs> the pills were, uh, the, the malaria had become so drug resistant even back then. Um, so then I was diagnosed in 2011 with an incurable disease and it took me a long time and a lot of pain and suffering, uh, you know, later to realize nothing was working. Um, and it really kind of culminated in like 2015, 2016. I, I was like inches from death's door. I absolutely was just from the medications. Um, so then last year I was also diagnosed with colon cancer 
had to go undergo surgery. That was definitely a side effect of the myotonic muscular dystrophy. And it's all listed there in the National Institute of Health. Um, how these two things are connected. There's been a number of other problems um, like the damage to internal organs, you know, mobility type issues. There's a lot going on. Um, I've applied for social security just as a safety net because every time I think I get ahead, I'm actually falling behind. <laughs> I have cataracts, I had holes in my retina, like it's, it's a mess, but in my mind, I, I wanna keep my mind pushing my body to keep going as much as I can. And it's largely, largely because, you know, with muscular dystrophy, when you stop, you might never be able to start again. <laughs> oh, so what, so two things on the allopathic, blah, 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 on the allopathic or Western medical approach, is there progress being made? Um, for certain things. Like I, yeah, absolutely. When you need surgery, I mean, you should go get it. Go, go find the best oh, oh, no, doctor. I mean, I mean, towards, uh, towards some treatment towards MD. Um, I believe, yes. I know that there's major research facilities in Stanford, Rochester, you know, a couple of other universities they are pretty open to using traditional medicine as well, but they're very focused on what's called myotonic dystrophy type one, which is congenital versus the type that I have, which is adult onset. Oh. Um, so the type that I have wasn't actually supposed to really appear until I was at least in my fifties. And it typically isn't as, um, death, it's not as dangerous as type one. Type one is unfortunately cuts someone's lifespan by quite a bit. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So are you seeing, um, just from what you've been looking into, how is the homeopathic side or the traditional medicine side when it comes to the same disease? Um, well, so far it's definitely helped kind of push back the colon cancer. So I do feel a lot better about that. Um, we'll, we'll have the technical proof <laughs> this month, later this month. Um, for the muscular dystrophy, I was able to regain a lot of mobility. Um, like using my hands or feet wasn't possible at the beginning, but now I seem to be okay with that. Um, it, it does help reduce pain and inflammation. Um, I have to be very careful with nutrition and things like that. So we're constantly watching my blood work and my liver and all of those indicators. Um, but overall, I, I'm definitely better with it than I would have been without it. <laughs> so... Um, this is going to probably get into a touchy area because of the premise I'm going to ask you, and it's not meant to have any opinion on vaccinations either way. Okay. But do you, 
as someone who has a background in studying traditional medicine, are you surprised that we pushed out the vaccines as quick as we did, but yet there's so many hurdles to approving traditional medicine for care? Um, I'm very disappointed about that, actually. Um, and I, I firmly believe that when people are sick and dying, we need to use everything in the toolbox to help them. So I, I'm very disappointed about kind of the corporate interests in vaccine development, in medication, how they're, I mean, it's everything. I had several friends die from after being retired from the Marines and they had their lives together. They were on a wonderful track and they died of drug interactions, which was entirely preventable. Um, so I, I really encourage people just to get out and see what is available for them. I, I do know that it's kind of like a sliding scale. Sometimes you need more Western, sometimes you're gonna need more Eastern medicine. But if you want to do the best possible thing for your health and your future, don't be afraid to slide between yeah. either side. You, you know where I stand on it. I'm a hundred percent with you on, on both things you just said. Um, yeah. I, I mean, let's face it. You've been to the VA. I've been to the VA. There's not just a mental health issue. And I really want to start talking about this and I just need to figure out how to bring it onto the show, but there's a bunch of veterans who are in our alumni, OIF, OEF alumni timeframe, 2000 to 2020 that were at their physical best when they came into the military and now obesity and bad diets, bad food, bad lifestyles. Um, sure. It's sad to see how many people, and especially with the pandemic, since I'm out walking all the time um, in those early days, how many people were just who I knew who would put on weight because for them, staying home meant eating more, eating more meant bad food, bad food meant high blood sugar, insulin resistance. And then it, it became a weird cycle of now I'm diabetic. Diabetics have bad outcome from the pandemic. I'm not going to go outside. So I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get out into nature and I'm going to stay home while well, I'm stressing. So I'm going to stress eat in the circle. Yeah. But starts- we, we, don't talk about the fundamental issue. Like human beings are animals. We, when we're stressed, we want to self soothe. And a lot for a lot of people that is eating. Yeah. And instead we, yeah. And we, we get wrapped up in guilt and then we feel bad about ourselves and it becomes this whole like psychological (laughs) chain reaction. Yeah. And it, you know, people aren't being taught how to cope in healthy ways with various things. And they don't have the information out there. It's too many people are making money off of selling sugar and bad food. Like processed meat, for example, is a level one carcinogen listed by the World Health Organization. Eating processed meat is as bad as smoking. 
Well, there's been some of that's been debunked <laughs> and they're mainly talking about like uh, cured meat with uh, nitrates. Cured. Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. That has not been debunked. That is no, no, very, no, 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 no. Yeah. No, but the original, <laughs> the original way it came out was any processed meat, meaning any meat that had gone through a processing plant, i.e. Yeah. cut up, taken off the animal. No, then, no. Yeah, We're talking yeah. about with, with chemicals, yeah. foods with chemicals. And, um, I mean, I mean, it's not just meat. Sugar is, is very bad too, because it's being bleached. Yeah. Um, Con- conventional yeah. farming with all of the roundup and all of that too. I mean, yeah. no matter which diet approach you take, there's, if you stay conventional, whether um, you're a animal-based person like I am and I eat conventionally processed meat, I'm putting myself at more of a risk than pasture-raised uh, organic meat. And same with someone who's a vegan who is eating conventionally farmed fruits and vegetables with pesticides like Roundup sure. versus yeah. organic. Yeah. yeah. And then everyone who likes to eat those middle aisles. <laughs> but, well, they, you, you, yeah. It's, yeah. So it's, it's kind of funny because people are so, you know, weird about the vaccine, but yet they will go and eat something that has a long list of ingredients and they don't know what it is. (laughs) Well, it's also how disturbing is it that, um, there's incentives. Like if you get your vaccine, come get a Dunkin' Donut. I I think I saw something, I forgot whether it was New York or one of those Northeastern states, show us your vaccine card and you'll get a free beer. Oh, geez. Um, how about get your vaccine and take it to gold's gym and you get a free month membership. Yeah. How about you get your vaccine and you get this card that you can take to Whole Foods and get whole, you know, organic produce or organic meat or something organic. That actually assists your immune system. So yeah. back to your initial question of what are my thoughts about the vaccine? I mean, I'm. I'm oh, no, I just meant it being fast tracked over, oh. over um, all of these whether it's plant-based medicines or other natural medicines that are, that aren't even in the system yet. They're not even getting looked at. Yeah. You know, in a pandemic situation, I think we should use everything we have. And I have a lot of friends from grad school in India and the vaccine has become unavailable to them. And as you know, India is in one of its worst outbreaks. Um, Actually one of the worst outbreaks in the world was India and I've been sending him all kinds of different Chinese formulas and plants that I know and that the research suggests would help against COVID-19. Yeah. And I, I know that uh, they, in at least three states, I think Mumbai um, is finally instituting it, ivermectin, which has been talked about, but always said it doesn't work. Yeah. But now there's huge studies that are being done in India right now where it's like, no, this is absolutely a prophylactic and it absolutely stops it dead in its tracks. Yeah. But it's a $3, I think, what was it? I last heard a $3 for a bottle of ivermectin and vaccine companies are making a lot more money, but that's a conspiracy rabbit hole. We can go down on another time. Well, I, people are very bad at, embracing complexity and i would yeah. <laughs> hope that a pandemic would encourage them to embrace complexity um, because it is an excellent time to talk about you know environmental degradation how is that 
influencing how pandemics are going to spread or exposure to new diseases that we don't we haven't previously discovered. Um, it also has a big conversation about how many people are metabolically or uh, their immune systems are unhealthy oh, based yeah. on the industrialized food system or yeah. the way modern life. So yeah, the, it, it can be a much more interesting and complex conversation than it has been. <laughs> so do you see yourself getting back into um, some of the activities you were doing pre-Navy uh, with the environmental groups and some of the other entities? Definitely. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the idea with becoming a boat captain is, you know, I could be involved in research vessels, sorry, vessels or something to that effect. Um, I have always had an interest in climate change policy and, you know, helping build climate resilient communities. So I'm not really sure how I can tie that in to maritime education, but I'm I'm sure that something will come up. Well, you, you know, the sea is full of plastic. So there's a lot you can do right there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So my last question for you, 2011, 12, there was a lot of um, things going on in the Atlantic training area that Naval intelligence would be very, very interested in. Where are the UFOs? <laughs> <laughs> All I know is the first thing that we do when we get our clearance is we are all on that damn computer <laughs> trying to find out where those aliens are and nobody has succeeded. <laughs> well, so I don't know. I, they're out there. <laughs> They've got to be. But <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe they're looking at Earth like, oh my God, that place is uh, kind of a trailer park. <laughs> Very, no very offense true. to trailer parks, but <laughs> so are you, um, are you going on a big boat today or a small boat? It will be a 24 foot boat. It's called the CNC and I have no idea what to expect. They're like really amped up about racing and always winning. So I'm sure I'm going to get yelled at and <laughs> You know, <laughs> I'm going to have to bring you back on because there's a lot of sailing stories I want to hear from you. And we didn't even get a talk, get a chance to talk about Magnus. Our, uh, oh, my God. <laughs> but we'll bring that up for another episode. Thank oh, you. We, we didn't even mention Team Paradise. He'll be so that, disappointed. Yeah. Uh, Team Paradise. Actually, for real, though, if you're in the Miami area and you're a vet, um, check out Team Paradise's website. I forgot what it is. Just you're smart enough to go Google it. Uh, <laughs> The guy we're talking about is great at yelling. No, actually, he's a good teacher, but he does uh, veteran sailing for free. Uh, like, I think it's one day a week. So if you're in the Miami area, go check it out. Yes. There, we did our, we, Mag, we did our thing for you. But on that note, thank you so much for coming on, Laura. Thank you for you're having me. It was good to see you as always. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it'd be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits.
Talk to you guys soon.